Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Today's story begins in 1953. This is the year Dwight Eisenhower became president, the USSR began testing the hydrogen bomb, and the United States developed a polio vaccine. It was also the year in which a farmer and minister in Oklahoma named Samuel Doss died a mysterious and painful death. Sam's doctor was flummoxed. Sam had been admitted originally around early September with searing abdominal pain and other bizarre symptoms, but he'd fought back. His doctor wasn't sure what had triggered the initial illness, but it seemed odd. Sam had always been healthy with an iron stomach. The 50-year-old had survived incredible emotional hardship too, and he'd bounced back from it. In fact, just a few months before he fell ill, he'd married for the second time in his life. It was the beginning of what should have been a beautiful second act for a man who had endured unspeakable loss. To understand that, we'll back up briefly. Sam was born in 1895 in Arkansas to parents George Doss and Nancy Mervina Keene. He was one of seven children, two girls and five boys. And right around the time he reached adulthood, Sam joined millions of other young men in the United States by registering for the First World War draft. At that point, he listed his occupation as a farmer laborer in Chaplin, Arkansas. Six years later, on January 31st, 1928, he married Winnie Artis Smith, a woman nine years his junior, in a small ceremony at her parents' house. The couple raised six children, two girls named Anna Lee and Wilma Jean, and four boys, Arnold George, James Monroe, Willie Joe, and Ernest Leroy. It was a pretty pleasant life, considering that most of the marriage was sandwiched between two world wars. In 1942, when Sam registered for the second wars draft, he listed his occupation as self-employed farm tenant. When he stayed home with the children, Sam also moonlighted as a United Baptist minister. I saw newspaper briefs inviting people to attend his services. Around March 1945, the family moved from Oak Ridge, Oklahoma, into a farmhouse near a small town called Marble. April 12, 1945, was as historic a day as they come. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin from CBS World News. A press association has just announced that President Roosevelt is dead. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This nation has suffered this day a staggering loss. Franklin D. Roosevelt, the first president to be elected for four terms in the White House, has passed away. And that is the overshadowing of all news events that have happened or can happen for quite a while. Four-term president Franklin D. Roosevelt had died of a hemorrhagic stroke. In the days before Twitter, the news was spreading slowly throughout the country. 
The Doss children, oblivious to this news, ranged in age from 3 to 16. That's as old as they ever got. The same day as FDR's death, the most destructive tornado in Madison County history tore through Oklahoma, destroying 100 buildings and causing, as one news story described it, inestimable damage to homes, businesses, schools, and churches. Nothing was spared, not farmland or equipment or even the farm animals. When the Madison County Record wrote a story detailing the Twister's path, it described what happened to the Doss property as the, quote, most tragic scene of destruction and death ever known in Madison County, end quote. Sam Doss was at his brother's house in a nearby town, but Sam's wife and six kids were home. The newspaper wrote, quote, The house was picked up, tossed into a hollow nearby, and smashed into splinters. All outbuildings in the cellar were destroyed, and the canned fruit and all other supplies were blown away. Not a thing could be salvaged about the place. The bodies of the mother and children were scattered promiscuously among the ruins. End quote. Imagine going to work one normal day and coming home to a dead family and destroyed house. Sam relied on his faith to get him through this horrific loss. It took years before he reached a point at which he wanted to find companionship again. Back then, one way to meet was through a personal ad in the local newspaper. A quick detour on that. Today we do online matching and, in the age of coronavirus, plenty of Zoom dates. But before that technology existed, personal ads were huge. The first documented personal ad appeared in 1727 and was posted by Helen Morrison in the Manchester Weekly Journal that's in the UK. Society wasn't quite ready for such a thing, and because of the ad, Morrison was committed to an asylum for a month. But someone must have thought Morrison was onto something, because personal ads caught on by the early 1800s and continued well into my lifetime. I remember reading them disparagingly with friends in college while secretly loving them. They were also huge moneymakers for newspapers back in the day. But as websites like Craigslist took over, they began to disappear with all the other classified ads. Now back to Sam Doss. I'm not sure if he placed the ad or he simply responded to one he saw, but one way or another, such an ad introduced him to a woman named Nancy Hazel, called Nanny by those who knew her. At least Hazel was her maiden name. She'd also been Nanny Braggs, Nanny Harrelson, Nanny Lanning, which you have to admit has a nice sound to it, and Nanny Morton. Sam likely didn't know she'd had quite that many surnames, Being the God-fearing man he was, it seems likely he wouldn't have approved. Nanny was a charming woman, though. She was buxom and matronly. She spoke in this cutesy, folksy way. Yes, sir. I'm so glad I'm good. Y'all have all been very nice and I've had good news. Nice warm bed sleeping. That's Nanny talking. It's kind of hard to hear what she's saying, but you can get a sense for the way she spoke. Like Sam, she had had some difficulties in her life. Nanny had been born in 1906 to Louisa and James Hazel. This is Tori Rose, who studied Nanny's case in an honors program at the University of Texas at Austin. Her father, from all sounds, was abusive verbally and physically. He was incredibly controlling. He didn't let any of the girls go out or interact with men really at all. He didn't let any of the kids go to school. Instead, he had them kind of work at the family farm. 
James was said to be a controlling man who forced his kids to work on the family farm, which meant Nanny didn't get much schooling. When she was seven, she endured a brain injury that she claimed changed her life. When she was very young, she was on a train and supposedly the train stopped and her head slammed forward and hit a metal bar. She said that in the aftermath, she had a lot of headaches, blackouts, and she tried to kind of attribute her behavior to that incident. There were never any brain scans, so we don't really know how damaging this was, and there wasn't anyone that corroborated that this happened, but this is something that she definitely tried to pin her behavior on later, especially during the trial. Between her clouded thinking and her controlling, abusive father, Nanny took refuge in her mom's romance novels. The books fed into a fantasy life that often centered around a Prince Charming. The men in her life were certainly nothing of the sort. By the time she was a teenager, Nanny had been molested by a series of them. Now, Sam had moved to Oklahoma from Arkansas about two years before he started writing letters to Nanny, whose name was on a Lonely Hearts Club mailing list, according to a summary by The Oklahoman. I can't help but notice Sam's mom's name was Nancy, same as Nanny's real name. I wonder if he was drawn to her because of her name. Well, whatever the reason, he and Nanny hit it off, writing each other letters for eight months before marrying in Tulsa on July 13th, 1954. Sam was hoping for a second chance at Happily Ever After, but it never came. Barely two months had passed after Sam and Nanny were married before Sam was taken to the hospital in terrible shape. He was cramping up with abdominal pains after eating stewed prunes, according to a 1957 story in the Corpus Christi Caller Times. That was in early September, and whatever was plaguing him was so bad that he wasn't released from the hospital until October 4th. Nanny took him home. She gave him a cup of coffee. The pain came back, and Sam returned to the hospital. He died October 6th at age 58. Nanny told nurses... He was a good man. It turned out that Sam's doctor, the first time around, had already suspected his patient's illness had been caused by poison. After the burial, a tip came in to the Oklahoma State Crime Bureau suggesting an inquiry. Bureau head Ray Page and homicide captain Harry Stege, I might be mispronouncing the hell out of that, but I'm sticking with it, began to investigate. They learned the brief marriage between Nanny and Sam had been strained. He was really boring. He really didn't want her reading these romance stories or watching romances on the television. He just was very strict and religious and liked to have a strict Christian home. Sam was a hardcore fundamentalist, which meant he frowned upon some of Nanny's favorite interests, like dancing and singing. Sam reportedly forbade Nanny from reading True Detective magazines or her beloved romance novels. He also refused to let her have a radio or TV set. The Caller Times story says, quote, Unless there was an evening church service, he made Nanny retire with him at 9.30 every night, end quote. Still, Nanny couldn't have been a murderer. Those suspicions seem crazy. She was 49 years old and pleasantly plump. She had rosy cheeks and was a grandmother, wore pearl necklaces and eyeglasses that my grandmother would have called darling. 
This was a woman who got work after Sam died as a nanny, lowercase n this time, taking care of a family with young children. Police decided to question her, though at first they were just going through the motions because of the doctor's suspicions and that tip to police. As police asked Nanny questions about her husband, she seemed to answer candidly, though her demeanor was a bit odd. She wasn't heartbroken like you might expect a widow to be. Rather, she smiled and giggled and kept insisting she knew nothing about Sam's death. The cops asked for permission to perform an autopsy on Sam. Nanny said, sure. More than that, she said she wanted them to perform an autopsy because whatever had killed her husband might kill somebody else too. And so they end up conducting an autopsy and they find that he is just filled with arsenic. In the autopsy, the coroner found what he described as enough arsenic to kill a horse. At first, Nanny said she had no idea how arsenic got into her new husband's system. But after some marathon interrogating, she finally came clean. Sam had been pretty mean to her. One night, she fixed him one of his favorite foods. He sure did like prunes, she said. I fixed a whole box and he ate them all. Those prunes had been liberally doused in rat poison, which contained arsenic. That didn't kill him, though. It landed him in the hospital, where he fought for his life for a few weeks. And she took him home and served him a cup of coffee. That's the dose that did him in. At that point, Nanny tries to fill a, a rush to get her insurance policies that she had taken out on him. But it's so clearly evident at this point that she's the one responsible that she's arrested. So investigators had a cause and manner of death for Sam Doss. Something about Nanny's demeanor, though, compelled them to dig deeper. Nanny insisted they were wasting their time. She told police, you can dig up all the graves in the country, you won't find any more on me. Bit by bit, they tracked the wildly winding route of Nanny's life, love, and otherwise, and discovered a trail of untimely, unexplained deaths that spanned some 30 years. Here's what they found. Nanny's first marriage was to a guy named Charlie, who worked with her at a linen factory. She'd caught Charlie's eye when she was 16 because she was a pretty girl and lots of fun. The two got married May 8, 1921, in Alabama's Calhoun County, and things went well at first. They had five children, one of whom died right after birth. The four who survived were all girls. A few years in, the couple's marriage started to suffer. Both parties were unfaithful. Sometimes Nanny would up and leave with someone, and Charlie would have to track her down to bring her home. In 1927, two of the couple's daughters, a four-year-old named Selmer and a one-year-old named Gertrude, died a month apart from each other, both of suspected food poisoning. Charlie wasn't sure the deaths were accidental. Charlie left in the morning, and the kids were fine. He comes back, and they're very, very ill, and they, they die. He told a reporter, some of the neighbors said there was something funny about the way they died because they turned black so quick. About 25 years later, after Sam had died and police had reason to ask about Nanny's past, Charlie told them he had left Nanny because he was scared to death something would happen to him. Charlie was the only husband of hers who survived. About a year after that divorce in 1929, Nanny met and married Robert Frank Harrelson and brought her two surviving children, Melvina and Florine, with her to Jacksonville, Alabama. 
At some point early in the marriage, Nanny abandoned Florine in an empty house, leaving her and Frank only with Melvina. Florine eventually reunited with her father, Charlie, who had remarried and lived with a new daughter and stepson. Florine found some stability there, but she wasn't destined for a happily ever after either. Records show she died young at age 32. Nanny's new husband, Frank, listed as a farm laborer in the 1940 census, was apparently a romantic guy. He was a year younger than Nanny at 23 when the two met, and he liked to write her romantic poetry. Unfortunately, he also did not meet her expectations. He was an alcoholic, and he had a criminal record, but they stayed married for 16 or so years. It's impressive they stayed married for 16 years. But I should mention that when you tell the story of Nanny's marriages, you keep having to take detours to talk about a slew of unexplained tragedies in this woman's life. For example, in 1943, Melvina, her daughter, gave birth to her own child, a son she named Robert Lee. There's a story I found on the internet that suggests baby Robert, Nanny's grandson, died a few hours after birth, but that's not true. His obituary and death records show he was actually two years old when he died in Nanny's care. That was July 7th, 1945. The doctors couldn't really give a great explanation. Two months after that, 39-year-old Frank came home one night after partying, demanded sex, then raped Nanny. At least that's the story she later told. The next day, Frank mysteriously died a slow and painful death. He was only the first of Nanny's husbands to die under mysterious circumstances. In 1947, two years after her second husband's death, Nanny met a North Carolina man named Arlie Lanning, who worked in the furniture business. Story is she married him three days after meeting him. Arlie had endured his own trauma. His wife, Viola, died of cancer the year before. Looking for love once again, he placed a personal ad, according to a book called Serial Killers and Psychopaths. Though the book's a bit suspect because it gets the date wrong on which Arlie dropped dead of a suspected heart attack. The book says it happened in 1950, but Arlie's death appears on the North Carolina Death Index dated February 16, 1952. He didn't die right after his supposed cardiac arrest. Rather, he languished in the hospital for three painful days before Nanny became a widow for the second time. Now, I point out that the Serial Killers and Psychopaths book got the date wrong, not to needle them, but because it speaks to just how many tragedies littered Nanny's life. It's hard to keep them straight. Someone did die in 1950, but that was Dovey Francis Weaver, who was one of Nanny's sisters. Doctors never could seem to pin down a cause of death. Funny thing about causes of death, though, a lot of states back in the day had a system in which to perform an autopsy, you needed either a court order or permission from the dead person's family. An untimely death didn't automatically result in an autopsy like it usually does today. Nanny was often a witness to these deaths, as well as the decedent's next of kin. She told coroners there was nothing suspicious about the deaths, and the coroners apparently believed her. But back to Nanny's love life, Soon after Arlie died, she again starts submitting advertisements to these 
Lonely Hearts columns at this point. That's clearly her method of finding men. She began corresponding with a new beau, this time a Kansas man named Richard Morton, who was a manager of a billiard academy in Emporia, Kansas. Based on his World War I draft registration, he was part Native American and had been married before with three children. It appears he and his first wife divorced. Richard was 69 to Nanny's 48 years, and the two swapped letters for a few months. Then poor Nanny faced another gut-wrenching loss. Her mother, Louisa Hazel, died while Nanny was serving as her caretaker in North Carolina. The date was January 3rd, 1953. After that, Nanny moved to Kansas, and by the end of January was Mrs. Richard Morton. Nanny and Richard shared several interests, notably music and dancing. Unfortunately, Morton also showed a lot of interest in other women, and Nanny didn't like that. They had just passed four months of marriage when, on May 19, 1953, Richard drank a strong cup of coffee and dropped dead. I have to interject another tragic side note here. Adi Sula, married name Bartlett, another of Nanny's sisters, sadly died in August 1953 at just 43 years old. As we've heard before, a cause of death was never determined. Within months of Richard's death, Nanny was corresponding with Sam Doss, the widower whose entire family had been killed by a tornado. By then, Sam had left Arkansas and moved to Oklahoma, where he made money as a Tulsa highway worker. We already know how that story ended. After testing showed Sam's body was teeming with arsenic, Nanny was arrested in late November 1954 in his death. That on its own could have landed her in the electric chair, but police wanted to know just how deadly this adorable woman had been. Four husbands, two sisters, two daughters, her mother and a grandson, all dead in her wake. Either Nanny was the unluckiest woman alive, or something sinister was going on. One by one, authorities exhumed the bodies of her suspected victims and tested for arsenic. The motive in these deaths wasn't hard to figure out. In each case, Nanny had been awarded at least a few hundred bucks in life insurance. Plus, in the cases where the dead person was her husband, she'd been the beneficiary to his estate. Well, there was one exception. Arlie Lanning actually left his estate to his sister, but then a funny thing happened. Right as Nanny was moving away, Arlie's house burned down. The house had been insured, and as Arlie's spouse, Nanny was the beneficiary. Arlie's sister got nothing. Each time a late husband was exhumed, newspapers splashed the inevitable findings in stories nationwide. Incredible levels of arsenic were found in each. Now, to die of arsenic poisoning is to die a horrific death. Arsenic's a naturally occurring element you can find in food and soil, even water and air. But while it's natural, it can also be quite deadly. It can make someone sick either from a single large dose or from repeated small doses. Here is a very excited doctor on a show called The Doctors explaining some of the symptoms. Stomach cramps. You can have problems swallowing. You can get this bizarre metallic taste in your mouth. Excess saliva production. Again, all nonspecific. Garlic breath, blood in your urine, right. cramping muscles. You mentioned the hair loss. 
excessive sweating, very nonspecific, diarrhea, problems with vomiting. And of course, if you get to the point where you're so full of poison, you can have convulsions that can lead to death. When the dose is large enough, arsenic can kill within just a few hours. Repeated or chronic exposure presents more subtly. The person poisoned might feel weak. Their skin might get scaly or change color. Streaks might appear on their fingernails. The brain might get cloudy and the body anemic. Arsenic's serious enough stuff that it's recognized as a carcinogen today and the Environmental Protection Agency and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration have both set limits on safe exposure levels. Now, because arsenic is odorless and tasteless, it had been, for centuries, the perfect murder method, dating back to the Roman Empire. As Dr. Joe Schwartz told the Montreal Gazette, Poisoning with arsenic goes back a long time. But most people, of course, are familiar with the 1944 movie Arsenic and Old Lace, or they've read Agatha Christie, who used arsenic as a... Anyway, we know that arsenic is highly toxic. It's not surprising that royalty was worried about being poisoned, mostly by arsenic, and kings had tasters. And, of course, they could dispense with the taster, or if the taster perished, they knew not to partake of the food. Arsenic use began to slow down after a British chemist named James Marsh developed a test in 1836 to detect even tiny amounts of arsenic in blood, urine, hair, and fingernails. By the time Nanny's loved ones began dropping dead from arsenic poisoning, doctors knew well how to test for it. The problem was, they couldn't get an autopsy without Nanny's consent So they never tested for arsenic and instead attributed the deaths to other ailments, like heart attacks or food poisoning. Now that the bodies were being tested, police were building a solid case against Nanny, though she at first denied all but Sam Doss's murder. She was, initially, a reluctant witness. She even denied knowing Richard Morton, her fourth husband, until her interrogators showed her proof of five insurance policies totaling $1,400 and naming her as beneficiary. Nanny supposedly chuckled, Well, you got me trapped. I guess I did know him. Newspapers that started running the wire stories about Nanny often ran her photo alongside the headlines. The first that made the rounds was a picture of Nanny looking straight at the camera and smiling this huge, I'm going to come pinch your cheeks, smile, while being escorted by county investigator Ross Billingsley for questioning. The next photo that circulated was Nanny, identified in the caption as Nanny Morton Lanning Doss. They forgot her first two surnames, Hazel and Braggs. In the picture, she's smiling at the camera again, this time with a bit more subtlety like a mother-in-law posing for a wedding portrait. Standing next to her is one of the homicide detectives who grilled her for two days straight. These photos of Grandma Nanny were so at odds with the stories running alongside them. She looks like this, you know, like old granny. She's like definitely older. She's kind of a little pudgy in the face. She looks like someone that, you know, would bake cookies and then give them to neighborhood children. She does not look like someone you would expect to have killed four husbands and two children and a grandchild. It was grueling work, but interrogators eventually got a confession to each husband's murder. Each time she admitted to one, she would claim that it was the only other one she had done and, quote, my conscience is clear, end quote. Then interrogators would press some more, 
and she'd cheerfully begin her next confession. One wire story read, quote, Prolonged grilling of the smiling, talkative widow by relays of officers over the weekend produced signed statements from her admitting each husband's death. Calmly smoking a cigarette, she related in detail how she put the poison into the food and drink of her mates, each from a different state, end quote. It was a slow, exhausting process for investigators. The interrogation sessions lasted hours on end. That said... Nanny wasn't the most unpleasant killer they'd ever encountered. At one point, she noted that the investigators looked weary and said, I feel awful bad about keeping you fellows up this way. I'm sorry to be so much trouble. If you're reading her story just without digging very deep, you'll just kind of think, oh, you know, she's killing for money. That's what's happening. But it's not really that clear because she wasn't really killing for money. When she was asked why she was killing, she said she was looking for the romance of a lifetime. For each murder, she offered what she clearly considered a solid motive. Frank Harrelson beat her, she said. With Arlie Lanning, she'd been jealous because he was so popular with the ladies. Her reason for killing Richard Morton was similar. About him, she said she blew up when she found out he'd been running around with another woman and had even bought some rings. Sam Doss was mean to her, so she poisoned him twice. After killing the men, she took care in choosing their epitaphs. According to a December 1954 wire story, on their tombstones, she had engraved messages like, We will meet again, darling, how we miss thee, and God be with you. The Tulsa World reported that authorities found in Nanny's possession 27 pictures of Sam's body at his funeral. They'd been taken by photographers she hired for the event. How's that for a trophy? Some of the men's families had suspicions about their sudden deaths. Arlie's family actually alerted the coroner in Lexington, North Carolina, that they suspected foul play. But David Plummer didn't have enough evidence to exhume the body. After the confessions, well, the evidence was plenty, and the family's suspicions were finally validated. Ultimately, Nanny confessed to killing her husbands, but she didn't confess to everything police suspected her of. She insisted she never killed a blood relative, or, as she worded it, I never harmed any of my blood kin, meaning she denied killing her mother, two sisters, two daughters, and her two-year-old grandson. Tulsa Police Commissioner John Henderson said, When we started talking about her blood kin's death, her mood changed abruptly. He said the look of merriment quickly faded from her face and was replaced by one of depression. Authorities exhumed the relatives' bodies, and while testing results weren't reported on each of the cases, Nanny's mother, at least, was teeming with arsenic. In all, Nanny was suspected of 11 murders, though she confessed to only four. The seven question marks are the six relatives mentioned, whose deaths seem likely to have been by her hand, and Arlie's 85-year-old mother, whose likely wasn't. That Nanny would confess to four and no more doesn't lend much weight to the denials in my mind, though. It's amazing how many cases there are in which suspects confess to one aspect of the crime, but not another, as though they're somehow absolved if they did something bad, but at least it wasn't that bad. For a bit, it appeared Nanny might be aiming to mount an insanity defense. Her court-appointed attorney straight up told the judge who arraigned her that his client was crazy. The descriptions of her that appeared in the newspaper stories must have helped. 
She supposedly smiled and laughed while describing the agonizing deaths she inflicted. During her confessions, she paused to pretty herself up and then allowed television cameramen into the room while authorities continued asking questions. She chuckled and gave folksy-sounding answers that, had they not been describing murder, might well have sounded charming. Her demeanor was like nothing anyone had seen before in a killer, and it earned her some memorable monikers. She was called the Giggling Granny, the Giggling Nanny, the Jolly Black Widow, the Lonely Hearts Killer. Psychiatrists observed her for 90 days at Eastern State Hospital in Veneto, Oklahoma, and said she was mentally defective. Nanny herself pointed to that childhood head injury she had sustained telling a jail matron that she began thinking crooked after that. I don't understand those big legal words, she said after one hearing. They said something about a mental checkup, and I guess I need one. Maybe those docs at the hospital will teach me to think straight. In the end, a Tulsa County jury ruled she was sane. She told investigators that her real crime was desperately wanting the perfect relationship, a good, clean romance. If you're wondering why divorce wasn't sufficient, it's a fair question. The answer probably is connected to the life insurance money that she cleaned up. Nanny ultimately didn't plead insanity, though. What she pleaded was guilty, and she did it with a smile. She made it plain that she didn't feel remorse. My conscience is still clear, she said. It was also clear that she had had no plans of stopping after killing Sam Doss. Before she'd poisoned Sam for the first time, she had already started a relationship with a North Carolina man named Coy Faust. After Nanny's face was plastered across newspapers nationwide, Coy pulled out the two snapshots of Nanny he kept in his wallet. I'm the luckiest man alive, he said, telling reporters that he and Nanny had been dating for six months. Nanny asked him to marry her several times, he said, but he declined. Whatever the reason, intuition, maybe, fear of commitment, it probably saved his life. He told reporters, I had $2,500 worth of life insurance, and it looks like now they might have had to pay off on it if I had married her. Faust apparently wasn't the only new man in Nanny's life either. Dairy farmer John Keel, another North Carolinian, said he had been corresponding with Nanny since October, the same month Sam died, and Keel found himself falling for her. He found it especially endearing that she once sent him a cake. His thoughts had turned to marriage. Nanny's guilty plea could have cost her her life through Oklahoma's death penalty, but Judge Elmer Adams decided it would be a poor precedent to make her the first woman sentenced to death in Oklahoma. He gave her a life sentence instead. Before long, though, Nanny was actually complaining about having been spared. Life was boring behind bars, she said. For some strange reason, her offers to work in the kitchen preparing food for fellow inmates had been rebuffed. She told reporters who interviewed her that she wished North Carolina or Kansas would charge her with one of the other murders so she might be sentenced to death and just get it over with. Nanny's case was so bizarre, so counter to the typical image people have when envisioning a serial killer, that it of course was national news. The early stories literally ran in dozens of states, many times on the front page. It helped that Nanny's victims spanned at least four separate states, 
allowing reporters in those areas to write localized versions. But the ramifications of her case went far beyond train wreck gawking. It has a real place in forensics history. The same year Nanny was arrested and pleaded guilty to murder, a movement swelled to reform the system that had let her get away with killing so many men undetected. For example, this is from a December 1954 story in the Rocky Mount Telegram out of North Carolina. Quote, These ghastly and almost unbelievable revelations have touched off some interesting consequences in North Carolina. There have been renewed and proper demands for overdue reform of North Carolina's archaic coroner system. End quote. North Carolina wasn't the only state to weigh changes. See, at the time of Nanny's murders, much of the country was on a coroner system. As I mentioned earlier, autopsies generally were done only with family consent or a court order. Some places did have medical examiners, but the rules overseeing death investigations were basically non-existent. Coroners are different than medical examiners in some pretty key ways. That could be its own podcast, but the gist is that coroners are elected lay people who aren't required to have professional training, while medical examiners are appointed and have board certification. The deaf investigators I'm used to working with are steeped in forensic pathology. All they do is study death. Being a county's medical examiner is their full-time job, and finding the cause of death is a complicated and fascinating puzzle for them. And they know if they get it wrong, someone could get away with murder. Meanwhile, coroners usually have a day job. The coroner gig is basically a side hustle. In the state of Georgia, for example, the qualifications to be elected coroner are incredibly minimal. You've got to be at least 25 years old and a registered voter with no felony convictions. That's it. Today, the country is about 50-50 coroner versus medical examiner population-wise. It's still far from foolproof, but in Nanny Doss's time, it was basically a free-for-all. Nanny's case opened a lot of eyes. Now, how could you have a system that let family members straight up get away with murder? So in 1954, the same year Nanny pleaded guilty, a new emphasis was put on medical legal investigations. New laws were enacted in Oklahoma and beyond. Autopsies weren't going to be done at the family's whim anymore. Rather, suspicious or untimely deaths would be investigated on behalf of the government and the public. If someone was thought to have died from an injury or poisoning, there would be an autopsy. If no physician certified the death, there'd be an autopsy. If someone died in government custody, there'd be an autopsy. The framework that laid out these guidelines was called the Model Postmortem Examinations Act of 1954. Nanny's case came to an official close 10 years to the day after she was sentenced to life in prison for Sam's murder. She'd been sick with leukemia while held at a state penitentiary in McAllister. After being transferred to an Oklahoma City hospital for treatment, she succumbed on June 2, 1965. It was reportedly a much more serene death than she'd allowed any of her victims. Most of my sources were contemporary newspapers, though I found a few tidbits via book excerpts. Comparing old stories with newer ones, I realized there's an impressive amount of hearsay that's been adopted as fact over the decades, so I did my best to tease out and set aside the bullshit. 
Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 